Recorded live. 1440 WNYG Babylon. Welcome back. This is Chris Sarns and your host of Iron Sharpened Siren. If you just tuned us in, our theme today is uh, revealing the identity of the Beast of Revelation and the Antichrist, so at least in the eschatological and theological position of our guest, Gary DeMar, who is an author. He's a, Christ- he's a Christian apologist, the president of American Vision, and editor-in-chief of Biblical World View magazine. And uh, it's such a great uh, pleasure to have you back on the program, Gary DeMar. Well, thanks for having me back. I, I appreciate uh, it, especially on a topic like this, what often, oftentimes gets uh, some, some listeners rather riled up. <laughs> yes, people do hold to their traditions very passionately when it comes to these uh, issues. Uh, it seems eschatology reign supreme with a lot of folks, and if you mess with their views of the end times, you better watch out. But uh, we are going to be uh, revealing today uh, your view uh, or your position on who is the beast of Revelation and uh, the Antichrist. And I promise uh, all of you listening, there will be no jokes made to any particular candidate running for president of the United States right now. But uh, Oh, by the way, Chris, I did hear from, from somebody that... Uh, this is no joke that they thought it was Barack Obama. And, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I was teaching a class on Daniel in our, at our church, and uh, they, this woman, she teaches with her, and uh, anyway, she came up and said that she thought it was Barack Obama, and she gave these various reasons, and this person was in my class said, well, do you know that the Bible doesn't say this, 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 and this? And this woman was kind of in shock, so... Uh, uh, but uh, this, somebody's going around with Barack Obama as the Antichrist, very much like they went around saying Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist yeah. because his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each each of the three names uh, registers uh, the number six, six letters in each name. So uh, it, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you'll find all kinds of what of uh, people out there who are going to identify each of the candidates as the Antichrist. Yes, in fact, I think Don Imus said it was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, of course, we also want to address uh, other things such as the whore of Babylon, the uh, man of perdition, the false prophet, other terms like that that are used in the scripture. But uh, and this, is, this all, by the way, for those of you listening, is uh, a part of the subject matter in Gary DeMar's book, Last Day's Madness. We began our discussion several weeks ago with Gary on his book, Last Day's Madness, but we were primarily during that interview, focusing on what Gary believes are the errors of uh, dispensationalist uh, eschatology, and today we wanted to focus on what Gary actually believes himself. So uh, why don't we uh, just cut to the chase. Uh, Who is or who was the beast of Revelation and the Antichrist? Well, again, any time I deal with a subject like this, and this is something every Christian ought to do, is you need to go to the scriptures themselves to let the Bible itself uh, define our terms for us. And uh, too often many Christians hear things for the you know, from people from so-called Bible experts, and they've never really checked out the Bible itself on this topic, and so I always ask a Christian, well, what is the biblical definition of Antichrist? And and uh, and to be honest, Chris, I, I find, uh, you know, blank stares from people that have never really thought about it before. They'll take the word and say, well, Antichrist, it means somebody who's against Christ. And, of course, that is the most basic 
definition of Antichrist, but it isn't particular enough. Mm -hmm. The Bible tells us in what way a person mm -hmm. is an Antichrist. And so if you go to Second John uh, verse 7, uh, the, the word Antichrist, for example, which is kind of a curiosity, does not appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, which you would think that's where it would appear the most. The word isn't found there at all. It's only found in John's epistles. Um, Paul doesn't use it. None of the other New Testament writers use it. Only John does in his first and second epistle. And if you look at the definition in verse 7 of, of 2 John, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things in this passage that you, you learn, in fact, that there are many of them, there's not just one, mm -hmm. and that they were, in fact, alive and well in John's day. And then the other is, is definitionally, they, they are the ones who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so instead of this being a political figure, I believe that it's very clear here that John is describing somebody of a religious figure. Rome didn't care whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or not. They, they cared whether he was a king and claiming to be a king. That was the argument that was used in the gospel accounts of how, the, how the, uh, the, the, some of the Jews wanted to get rid of Jesus. There were two trials, one Herod, one Pilate. And with Pilate, it was he declares himself to be a king. Uh, so Rome didn't care whether Jesus was the Messiah. They cared whether or not he was a king. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then verse 23, Whoever denies the, denies the Son uh, does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And this is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So this is obviously a theological figure. Probably the apostate Jews denied that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in human flesh. And they were, they were, the, they were the Judaizers, or those, those were the ones who were attacking the, the, uh, the Jewish church in the first century. Uh, this is not a political figure. So are the uh, Westminster Catechism and the London Baptist Confession of Faith incorrect when they declare that the Pope is the Antichrist? Well, that is a popular view, and you're right. Almost all the Reformers uh, identified the Antichrist as uh, related to the papacy. Uh, I believe that this is where they got it right. They got it right that it was a religious figure, not a political figure. Uh, but like so much of prophetic speculation, there are those who tend to interpret the Bible in terms of their own cultural situation, their own political situation, or whatever's going on in the church right now. Um, I, I think it's very clear from John that, this, that whoever these antichrists were, they were alive and well in his day. And while you might be able to make some application to the papacy, uh, I don't think that's what Paul, I don't think that's what John had in mind. Do you think you could apply that to any heretical group that denies that Jesus came in the flesh, such as Gnostics? Probably. But I, yeah, probably, but I, again, the first thing we have to do is determine what John was, was probably referring to. 
Now, it's possible because you get into the book of Revelation, it talks about this in Nicolaitan, and it's some point that they were the Gnostics. Uh, but I think John was, uh, was dealing here with those in the Jewish com community who denied that Jesus was, in fact, related to the Father in any way, uh, and who denied that he was, in fact, uh, the, the, the promised Messiah. Um, that, I think that's, that's what's that's really going on here. The confessions, of, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith, at least in the Presbyterian Church in America, and I, I would, I, I'm not sure if it's in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they have changed the Westminster Confession of Faith on the identity of the Antichrist. They no longer... The, the revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith no longer holds that the uh, the papacy is the Antichrist. Yes, and I know that uh, many, uh, if not most, Reformed Baptists who hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is nearly identical to the Westminster, uh, believe that up for personal interpretation. Yeah. They don't make that as a uh, an essential uh, element of the confession. Right. But it is, it's still a view that still a view that's held today, uh, so it's more in, for those of, those of your listeners who understand this, this, the historicist perspective of interpreting Revelation, that's generally that the papacy is considered to be the Antichrist. And uh, it's no wonder why the Reformers thought so in a day and age when tens of thousands of evangelicals uh, were being uh, tortured and murdered for their faith. Oh yeah, I mean, you, I mean the, the doctrine, the the, the Pope uh, setting himself up as the vicar, the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on earth, the the, the trappings of the the Roman Catholic Church, the vestments and the garments and the ceremonies and so forth. Uh, one could see that one could understand that that was indeed the case, but again, I would say that this is that's more of an applicational. Mm -hmm. a way of looking at the Antichrist definition than the actual historical interpretation of, the, of, of what John was, was getting at. Mm -hmm. Now, unlike uh, the term Antichrist, which the scriptures clearly uh, teach is not one individual, uh, there is a different scenario with the beast of Revelation, correct? Yeah, there are actually, if you go to Revelation chapter 13, there are actually two beasts mentioned. Uh, there is a beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation 13, 1, and then there is a, a beast that comes up out of the earth in Revelation 13, 11. So there are actually two beasts, and for this you really you have to have some idea of Daniel's prophecy, because there you see these, these beasts, uh, uh, the leopard, the bear, the lion, and so forth, although there's the dragon here as well. This is, uh, these are obviously uh, uh, political entities to a certain extent because beasts generally in the Old Testament refer to was Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and Greece and then Rome. Uh, and and uh, many speculate that the sea beast here is a reference to Rome because it comes up out of the, it comes up out of the sea, uh, which would make it a Gentile nation. And then the beast that comes up out of the land uh, and who has two horns like a lamb and speaks as a dragon is probably apostate Israel colluding with Rome in the first century against the church or colluding with, with, with Nero in one sense against the church. So you've got two beasts, one land, one sea, sea beast probably Rome, land beast probably first century uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. 
now, uh, what do you make of the view that it was uh, Nero? Well, the, the the way that is worked out, uh, and a lot of this has to do with the dating of, of Revelation. If, if the book of Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it makes Nero as a candidate for the for the sea beast uh, a, a probable, and uh, and the if it's written after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, then it's anybody's guess. Uh, I believe that the book of Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and so Nero seems to be the best candidate here, because we learned from Revelation that the, the sixth king, the sixth Caesar, as the interpretation goes, was alive while Revelation was, was imparted to John. Uh, and uh, the early date for the, the book of Revelation uh, is, is certainly prominent in, in the book of Revelation itself, uh, because we find that uh, John is told to measure the temple, and we know the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and that's one of the indicators that the book of Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Yes, uh, my uh, friend uh, Dan Bonifico, president of the Historical Bible Society, who agrees with you on the early dating um, of Revelation, um, he uh, says that... Uh, one of the evidences, one of the strongest evidences that it was written prior to AD 70 is because the scriptures do not actually record the destruction of the temple within its pages. Yeah, that is one of the arguments. That, you know, they, they, they argue and they say, well, here you have the book of Revelation written around AD 95 during the reign of Domitian. Certainly the new, the, you know, somebody, some of the authors of the New Testament would have said something about the destruction of Jerusalem. That is an argument, but it's more an argument, you know, from science. There's no way to, you know, to, to prove that. Some might say, well, it was 25, 25 years after the fall of Jerusalem and so forth. But uh, that is an argument, you know, that has been made. And, Chris, what's been interesting is the amount of scholarship uh, that's coming out on the early date of Revelation, as well as people, I mean, you got John Ankerberg, who's a dispensationalist, uh, you know, basically saying that it's probable that all the New Testament books were written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, Josh McDowell makes the, 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 the same claim, and uh, it's coming from secular and Christian uh, sources that the it's almost without a doubt that all of the New Testament books were written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Liberals tended to date the book, the, the New Testament books late. Um, when, you, when you date a book early, you're really taking the more conservative uh, uh, position over against liberals. Not that people who dated in AD 95 are liberals, uh, but it is the tendency of liberals to, to, to date the books of the New Testament as late as possible, even into the second century. Yes, well, it, it would seem uh, very strange to me that a monumental event such as the destruction of the temple and the end of the sacrificial system, which was so essential to Judaism, that would not be mentioned by somebody uh, who is an author of, of the Holy Scriptures. Yeah, that again, that is a, I mean, that is a, a very good logical uh, argument, and uh, and that is something, of course, that that is used in order to make that case. Um, and so, the, the Book of Revelation does have these hints in it as to when it was written. Of course, the book itself, you know, starts off and says that these things must shortly take place in the very first verse. Says for the time is near. The, end, the the last chapter says the same thing, and it seems rather 
curious is that the events of the book of Revelation uh, have not been fulfilled yet, uh, then why are these time texts that you mentioned so clearly in the very first chapter, very first verse, and in the last chapter as, as well? And so uh, the best book on this is Ken Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell. Mm -hmm. It was a doctoral dissertation where he deals with, uh, with the early late-date uh, controversy. And then he has another book where he kind of <clears throat> updates some of those arguments in a, in a less academic format in a book called The Beast of Revelation. Well, I find it interesting that a lot of people with whom I share this view seem so sad and disappointed <laughs> that... We don't have an, <clears throat> an anti a specific antichrist or beast to look forward to in, in our day. <laughs> yeah, it, it is you know it is kind of funny to to listen to them when you when you tell them this. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they they see that the mess that the world is in. You know, you see the the, the state of politics today and economics and what's going on in terms of uh, international events and the rise of Islam. Which, by the way, if you study the history of Bible prophecy you will find that there is nothing unusual going on today that hasn't gone on centuries ago. Um, and if we had time, we could go through all of that. The rise of Islam, place of Russia in Bible prophecy. I mean, you can go back and back and back, and you can find the same types of arguments that are being used today. Mm -hmm. But what you find today that, that, that's different is they, they hold to this idea yeah, the world's going to get worse and worse, and nothing we can do about it, so I'm not really responsible. And anyway, I'm going to be raptured out of here before it all takes place. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you start messing with their eschatology and saying this whole scenario is not taught in Scripture, then they begin to figure out, uh-oh, I'm going to be left here, so the mess the world is in is, to a certain extent, my responsibility to bring about change to fix and I thought, well, I wasn't going to be here to be responsible for that. <laughs> yes, that is interesting. Um, if you'd like to join us on the air with a question uh, for Gary DeMar, whether you agree with what he is saying or whether you radically oppose what he is saying, and perhaps this is just something that you've never heard before and you're not sure, our number is 631-321-WNYG, 631-321-WNYG. We promise we will respect you no matter what eschatological view you may have. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. 631-321-WNYG. 631-321-WNYG. And as always, if you feel more comfortable remaining anonymous, you may do so. 631-321-WNYG. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Chris Sorensen. And our guest today, if you've just tuned us in, is Gary DeMar. He's an author, a Christian apologist, and president of American Vision, in addition to being editor-in-chief of Biblical Worldview. And today we are discussing the Beast of Revelation and the Antichrist, as well as the False Prophet, the Whore of Babylon, and other uh, terms that we seek to uh, identify today. And uh, before we go back to the discussion, Gary, tell our listeners something about uh, American Vision, if this is the first time they're hearing you interviewed, and also Biblical Worldview magazine. Well, American Vision has been around... Uh about 30 years, and we deal with worldview issues, uh, prophecy being one of them, uh, but we deal with issues related to, I wrote a series called God and Government, uh, written some history, textbooks, America's Christian History, The Untold Story, uh, Thinking Straight in a Crooked World, which is designed for high school kids as they go off to college. So we're kind of a mix of uh, Christian apologetics, Christian worldview, America's Christian history. The eschatological thing is important uh, because a lot of people said, why bother with the world in which we live? 
because we're living in the last days, and that was something I had to deal with in my worldview thinking. And if anybody is interested in what we do and what we offer, you can go to AmericanVision.org, AmericanVision.org, and uh, there are books on there related to this topic as well as uh, other topics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the biblical worldview. Worldview magazine is is both a literal magazine and an online uh, source. Right, it's, a, it's about a 32-page magazine. Comes out every uh, other uh, month and it has a variety of articles in it on worldview issues, uh, movie reviews, a contemporary movie review as well as a classic movie review, which I do. Uh, and uh, we do seminars and debates and host uh, conferences and things of that sort as well. Going back to uh, the Beast of Revelation, um, and uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, you said that uh, Nero is the most probable candidate for that title? Prob- yes, and the reason for that is is that uh, the, the way it works is, is the fact that this, the, if, if the Revelation was written when the early dates, daters say it was written, they would have put it smack dab in the middle of, uh, or, or, well, I won't say the middle, but later in Nero's reign, he would be the sixth king that was alive while the revelation was being revealed to John. Plus his name, when put into Hebrew letters, which a Jew probably would have done or at least tried, uh, it comes out to if you if, if you spell it one way 666 and that is the mark that is the number it's not the number is not three sixes the number is 600 mm-hmm. three Greek letters that are used representing the number 600 representing the number 60 and then representing the number six so it's 666 and there's an interesting textual variant in some of the manuscripts that has the number of the beast as 616. And that would uh, fit the Latinized spelling of his name uh, with the final um, a, a noon off of the uh, off the Hebrew, instead of Nero Kaiser, uh, Nero Caesar, it would be uh, Neron Kaiser would be 666, and then Nero Kaiser would be 616. So that's that's the way that argument works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is also possibly the. Uh, well, that would get too complicated, but that's essentially how the, the Nero is identified as the as the beast, uh, the, the sea beast of Revelation 13. Now, I've heard some very uh, sick and twisted uh, stories about Nero, um, that uh, he actually had, a, had the nickname of being the beast in his day because he, uh, one, for one reason, he... Um, he used to dress in animal skins, and uh, I heard that he would crawl up to uh, Christians who were tied to stakes and actually chew off their genitals. And I apologize to our listeners for being so gruesome, but isn't that exactly what he uh, used to do, among other things? He was a na- he was. There's no doubt he was a nasty, nasty guy. Uh, you hear always we always hear about Caligula as being a bad guy, but Nero was a nasty, nasty guy, I and mean, he was a persecutor. Uh, of the church, uh, there really isn't much history that, as far as I've been able to tell about Domitian in AD 95, Nero was the was the real bad guy. I mean, he 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 persecuted Christians on a very regular basis, um, and you have to also understand at the time that uh, there were still the, the Jews. And again, not all the Jews, because the, the, the early church was made up 
primarily of, of Jews, but there were those who opposed the church. And we have to remember that, that it was the Jews who really pressured Pilate to get rid of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, you, you will see how the, how the Jews went against the, the church. And Rome, early on, really kept the Jews at bay over the, over the church. But when Nero comes along, that all changes, and there's, there begins to be an attack on, on the church. And so the historical situation fits the character of Nero, the, 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 the number 666, uh, the, the, the idea that the, the sixth king is still, still alive when Revelation is written, the time text near and shortly and quickly and so forth, uh, it, it does in fact fit uh, uh, Nero as being the, uh, the beast of Revelation 13. Mm -hmm. And why do you think uh, John the Revelator uh, used such cryptic language in the book of Revelation, and uh, why he wasn't just speaking plainly about who the beast was, why using the number 666 and other things like that? I think part of it is is that we don't read the Bible the way uh, a Jew would have read the Bible. In uh, this class I'm teaching on Daniel, uh, the, the point I made to the class was you read the book of Daniel, and uh, when you know Daniel's giving these various visions about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the metals, and they would immediately say, "Well, I've heard about those metals before. There, but they make up the sanctuary." And and then when they heard about these beasts, and said, "Well, I know what the Bible says about beasts, about being dominated by beasts, which is a sign of judgment." Uh, you read the, they, when they read the Old Testament, they understood it completely. They they well, I'll say completely, but they understood the language because they had read it before. Revelation is really written against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Um, and because of the time text and the, and the, the language from the Old Testament, there's a mention of Jezebel in there and Balaam and Egypt and Sodom. And, uh, and you, you, you get these, uh, Babylon is mentioned as well. You, they understood what was going on, even though they might not have gotten the particulars. Some have said, of course, it was designed, if it's ever gotten the hands of Nero, that he would know exactly what was going on, but that's more speculative. I just think that those who read the Old Testament understood the book of Revelation better than we do. They wouldn't have seen Cobra helicopters or a, or a Chinese army of 200 million men riding off into Israel. That's not the way they would have looked at the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Another bizarre story I've heard about Nero is that after the death of his wife, he actually uh, kidnapped a, a young boy and had him surgically altered as best as they could in that day and age to become a woman, and he married the boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, I mean, he was, he, was a bad, he was a very, very bad man, as uh, uh, Babu and um, uh, Seinfeld were a very, very bad man. <laughs> Uh, Ken Gentry's book, uh, The Beast of Revelation, has several chapters uh, in it on on Nero and 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 uh, his his char character, and it, it he, he was he was really terrible. So all these stories that we uh, hear, uh, primarily from uh, dispensationalists, uh, about uh, you know the mark of the beast is really either a credit card or. Uh, a tattoo that uh, folks are going to be getting in the future, or uh, perhaps even a computer chip implanted in their skin. I mean, I mean, there are there are some things that I've read in the media that 
you can understand why some uh, Christians would be very uh, nervous. Uh, I even read that there's a company working on uh, putting a computer chip uh, that would act as a, a, a barcode type of uh, scanning device that when you want to purchase things in a store, you wouldn't even need to go up to a register. You'd just be passing by something, and because this thing was implanted in your skin, the, the uh, register would automatically uh, ring up to what you owed, et cetera. But uh, yeah. that, that has nothing to do with the Beast of Revelation. Yeah, I, I would, see, this is, this is the thing. You don't have to hold to a particular prophetic position to understand that kind of stuff is, is sinister. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's the point I try to make to people. Uh, you know, this just, it's just common sense that those kinds of things are, are bad. Uh, the very fact that that language is used in Scripture to make that kind of case, I always use the case of 1 Samuel chapter 8, mm -hmm. where the people are told how bad this king is going to be, and they go and vote for him anyway. Well, that isn't prophecy. That's just a basic principle of, of, of Scripture that can be applied to any period of time. And you, we do that through the Bible constantly. We find things in Scripture, uh, the Judges chapter 9, where you find that, you know, the best men, uh, when given the chance to rule and to reign in power, decide not to do it. They turn it over to the bramble, to the worst people in society. You don't have to be a part of any particular prophetic situation to know that isn't the right thing to do. Uh, so anybody can, 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 can look at what's going on in our culture today and say this is wrong. You don't have to tie it to a particular prophetic verse in order to make your case. What the prophetic verse does, of course, it tells us this has been done before and it can be done again. But although what I think was happening in Revelation chapter 13 is not what is happening today, I think this was dealing specifically with that particular period of time, with a particular set of events and particular people in, in mind. And we have to go to a break right now. If you'd like to join us on the air with a question for Gary tomorrow, our number is 631-321-WNYG. 631-321-WNYG. We invite uh, anyone, no matter what your eschatological view is, to join us on the air, even if you radically oppose what Gary is saying. Uh, or if you agree or you're just not certain, 631-321-WNYG. Uh, well, don't go away. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. This is Chris Arns, and we are interviewing Gary DeMar, author, Christian apologist, president of American Vision, and editor-in-chief of Biblical Worldview magazine. We're talking about the beast of Revelation and the Antichrist. Uh, is the uh, false prophet a term that is synonymous with the beast? I think the false prophet is... Uh, probably related more to uh, uh, Israel. Again, I think the false prophet idea is a religious uh, figure more so than a political figure. And I, again, if you, a, a prophet comes out of, in, in biblical terms, a prophet comes out of the out of the nation of Israel. So a false prophet, uh, I think, should be identified more with with Israel. I think that's why you see what's going on here is this collusion. Uh, between Rome and apostate Israel against the work of Christ, because in the very next chapter, you've got these two beasts in Revelation 13, and in the very next chapter, it says, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having uh, his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, this shows us mm -hmm. that there is a distinction here between beasts and, and, um, and, and lambs. Uh, they're, they're, they're different qualities, they're different entities. 
Plus also, this goes to show us that this isn't dealing with something modern, because why in chapter 13 would this have to do with, you know, barcodes and implants and so forth? But the same language is used here about the lamb who has the name of his father written on their foreheads. So whatever this written on their foreheads is all about, it's got to be of the same quality and character. And are we saying then that Jesus is going to mark us with a barcode and a, and a you know some sort of implant? We would say absolutely not. You have to understand these passages in terms of the time in which they were written and the time uh, that they were written for. So you're basically saying these are just uh, figurative phrases. Yeah, this, these are these are sign symbols, and in fact, that's how Revelation uh, starts. It's it, 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 it uses the word that is and elsewhere in Scripture that these are signs, uh, and they are visual signs that have have real meaning behind them, but they are put together in terms of symbols that you know anyone could understand. You got Revelation chapter. Uh, 12, where you have this woman. Uh, I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and in the Roman Catholic Church, this was always the, you know, Mary standing on the um, uh, standing on the moon and the stars, the 12 stars on her head, and uh, and uh, clothed with the sun. Uh, but this, it's obvious that this is a reference, you know, to Israel depicted as a woman, mm-hmm. because in is in in Genesis chapter 37, there is. Israel is described as sun, moon, and stars. Mm-hmm. Well, there isn't a giant woman out there in the sun somewhere. <laughs> uh, standing on the moon. I don't think that's what this is all about. Then, then you have to move from there uh, to the fact that another sign, see it says, and another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to threw them to the earth. See, this is this is sign language, mm-hmm. uh, and that is how it's described in Scripture. So you have to understand these things in terms of this signage. And so the marking on the forehead and so forth. You have to go back to Ezekiel. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter six. And it's very evident that what's being identified here. This isn't. This isn't something with barcodes and uh, implanted, uh, you know, microchips. And again, that's not to say that if someone wants to put a barcode on your forehead or put a microchip in your in you, uh, that you should just take it uh, because <laughs> this dealt with a different period of time. Uh, yes, in fact, the Roman Catholics who would insist the woman that you mentioned in that imagery was Mary, they're actually, I think, shooting themselves in the foot because uh, if they believe, and then I... I'm sure you agree they wrongfully and heretically believe that Mary was sinless, then why does she have pain giving birth when that is clearly a sign of sin, a curse uh, of Eve in the garden? Yeah, there are all, yeah, all kinds of, of course, problems with that. But I can still remember, if I can see that thing in my head right now, that statue of Mary, based, I didn't know at the time, was based upon Revelation chapter 12. Uh, we're going to open up our phone lines now. If you'd like to join us, our number is 631-321-WNYG, 631-321-WNYG. And we do already have a caller on the line, Jim, in Massapequa, Long Island. Welcome to Iron Traffic's Iron. Hey, Chris. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Hey, it's uh, Pastor Jim Capo, Massapequa Church of yeah. God. I recognize your voice, brother. It's always great to have you call in. And, in fact, it's always great to have you as a guest or a co-host. Oh, thank you. It's great to... Uh be with you, and it's been a great show. I just have I have one question. Um, I'll ask it, and then I, I have to hang up. I'll listen on the radio for the answer. Um, uh, it concerns the early dating of uh, Revelation. 
Um, if Revelation was written uh, in the early date, at the early date, and uh, its, its prophecy is fulfilled, and, and Nero is, is the Antichrist that you've been discussing, uh, what then would, would you say is the, um, what, what is the message of Revelation to us today and the uh, application uh, of the book uh, for the church today? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's a good question. Because people always ask, uh, they'll say, well, man, if this stuff has already been fulfilled, then what, what message is there for us? What application can we make today? And the very first thing I tell people is, I said, do you believe that the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament referring to the first coming of Christ have already been fulfilled? People say, well, yeah, I do. I said, does the death of Christ nearly 2,000 years ago have any impact on you today? And you say, well, of course. So just because some prophecy is fulfilled or a whole series of prophecies are fulfilled doesn't mean they don't have any application for us. Uh, I, I think what we, there are a couple of things we can get out of all of this is, is, first of all, that God is true to his word. And God says soon, shortly, and quickly, he means that. When God says that he was going to promise to destroy, destroy the temple within a, within a uh, generation, in fact, that did happen just like he said it would. Uh, and also, I think we see here is that, that uh, just as uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And here we have a positive, we have positive evidence that God is true to His word, uh, that He does in fact judge in history, and even though things may be a mess today, like they were a mess in the first century, we talk about homosexuality and so forth today, but. It was going on in the first century, I and mean, Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 and, and 1 Corinthians 6. We see all of these things that are going on today. We see that they're unique to us, and I think Revelation tells us these things are not unique to us. It happened in the past, and as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and just like Janus and Jambres, these men will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. What the book of Revelation calls us to be is faithful. And uh, if we're not faithful, we will see this kind of prolonged extrusion of, 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 of evil take, pl you know, take place in our world. And I uh, thank you for calling, Jim. I know Jim already uh, left us, but uh, we would have been uh, sending you a free genuine leather Bible. Uh, retailing for $64.99, but since you uh, hung up already, Jim, we're not going to be doing that. <laughs> uh, Jim has already won one of our Bibles uh, by calling it in the past, so we only give those to first-time uh, callers. Uh, but anyway, uh, Gary, the um, who is the or what is the Horror of Babylon? Well, there are generally, uh, put them in, in, in my in my realm, two two areas, uh, two, two possible candidates. Uh, of course, we talked earlier about the Westminster Confession of Faith and some of the other confessions. Uh, they saw the Horror of Babylon as being the Roman Catholic Church. The, posi the position that I hold that the Book of Revelation is written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, some say that the Horror of Babylon is Rome or the Horror of Babylon is actually Israel, apostate Israel. Those are generally the two positions for those who take an early date for the book of Revelation. Um, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, and he talks about the sun, moon, and stars falling, he borrows that language from, from uh, Genesis chapter 37, but he also borrows it from uh, Isaiah chapter 13, 
where sun, moon, and stars refers to the fall of nations, explicitly refers to the destruction of Babylon. And that Jesus was identifying uh, New Testament Israel, apostate Israel, as Babylon, very much like he does in the book of Revelation, identify Jerusalem as Sodom and Egypt. And so all of these, all of these Old Testament uh, enemies of, of, of Israel are kind of wrapped up together, and this, this, is a, this is now a depiction of what apostate Israel has become, and that's one of the reasons why the temple was destroyed, the sacrificial system was gone, because by then Israel had become apostate, uh, and as a result, just like the high priest in the Old Testament would go in and look at a house, and if there was a leprosy on the house, that house had to be destroyed and burned. And that's exactly what happened to the temple in A.D. 70. Now, some of my uh, dispensationalist, fundamentalist friends uh, would accuse you of, uh, by denying that the Pope is the Antichrist, that <laughs> you're being soft on the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that's not true at all, is it? No, I don't know how, I don't know how if a prophecy refers to... Uh, something in the past mm -hmm. that, uh, that I'm obligated now to make to force myself to fly those prophecies of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I think the Roman Catholic Church needs to be dealt with in terms of, 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 of Scripture. Um, and again, I don't think it has to be... It, it, their position is, if it isn't prophetic, it isn't scriptural. Mm -hmm. And my point has always been, it doesn't have to be prophetic in order to, to evaluate something scripturally. Islam is not uh, uh, certainly isn't scriptural, and I don't think there's, of course, a lot of them would say, well, Islam is in the Bible too, but we, we can't deal with Roman, the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrines based just upon an appeal to scripture. Uh, when I became a, when I became a, a Christian, I came out of the Roman Catholic Church, I, no one ever made the link of, between Roman Catholicism and prophecy. They made the link by, well, the Bible says this about Mary, the Bible says this about, uh, Sola Scriptura. The Bible says this about uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Bible says this about good works and the relationship between works and faith. Do, do I have to attribute that to prophetic prophecy? I just can't just go to the book of James and go to these other places and, and make these evaluations based upon what Scripture has to say? I, I, I don't understand the logic of being soft on the Roman Catholic right. Church when there are so many Scriptures that deal with the Roman Catholic Church on just simply scriptural grounds without having to bring in prophecy. Yes, and I think some of the uh, fundamentalist apologists make a huge mistake by dwelling so much on their eschatological speculations that they miss the primary thing. They should be <clears throat> comparing the gospel of Rome with the gospel of scriptures. Yeah, which is, in fact, that was Paul's argument in Galatians. I mean, again, you, all you have to do is go to the book of Galatians, make your case. Here Paul's dealing with the Judaizers. And uh, Jews in general, and all you have to do is say, well, you apply those same arguments to the Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church, in, in, in one sense, is a, well, it's, a works, it's a works religion, which was the same thing that Paul was dealing with in Galatians. Mm -hmm. And what's almost, which, which indication in Galatians, there's hardly anything dealing with prophecy in the book of Galatians or, or Ephesians. 
Hey, we have to go to a break right now. This is your final opportunity. If you'd like to join us on the air with a question for Gary tomorrow, our number is 631-321-WNYG. 631-321-WNYG. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Uh, Gary, uh, the man of lawlessness. Oh, the man of lawlessness, we don't have time for that. I have, in my book, uh, Last Day's Madness, I have two uh, very detailed chapters dealing with the man of lawlessness. Uh, the man of lawlessness uh, was, in, if you look at the passage, Paul was uh, dealing with this, the concept that they had either gotten, had either heard or had gotten a letter from him uh, that the day of the Lord had already taken place. Uh, it doesn't say the rapture or the second coming, but the day of the Lord. And I think what Paul's dealing with there is this, they had this idea that the day of the Lord was the judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem. He can't, he couldn't, he couldn't be talking about the rapture. He couldn't be talking about the second coming. But how in the world would they have ever thought they had gotten a letter from Paul that either the so-called rapture or the second coming had taken place yet? Because you can, you wouldn't know that unless those events had taken place, and there's no way that Paul could have written a letter if they, in fact, had taken place. And secondly, everybody was still there. Uh, so Paul, I believe, is dealing with something else altogether. Uh, Paul also states in that passage that they knew what was restraining him now. <clears throat> so this restraint of this man of lawlessness was going on in their day. And I think it has to deal with, do with the, the, um, the, something to deal with the sanctuary, with the priesthood, and so forth. Uh, because if you do the study of what took place in events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the priesthood was corrupt. There was bloodletting that took place in there. I mean, it was an awful, awful thing. The, 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 uh, the temple had, in fact, been desecrated by the Jews themselves. Mm -hmm. And even the high priest at that time had lamented yes. how sad everything, how, 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 how the, the temple had fallen into disrepair as a result of all this. Yeah, the Hellenist uh, Jews sacrificed a, a pig, I believe, in the temple. Well, that was, bad. That was Antiochus Epiphanes back in the uh, second century B.C., about oh. 173 or so B.C. That, uh, uh, but there's, a, there's an allusion to all of that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. By the way, what, what was uh, the fulfillment of the image speaking in the temple? Uh, there is, that's in Revelation chapter 13, um, and there's a lot of indications that those kinds of things did in fact take place, uh, that these talking statues, if you ever go to the History Channel and watch this uh, ancient discoveries of a fellow named Heron uh, of Alexandria, very interesting to see that there were these ideas that these uh, these religious statues were actually made to speak and move and do all kinds of things mm. in the first century. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, Gary, as always, it was truly a fascinating uh, discussion, and I look forward to having you back on the program very soon. And please give our listeners your contact information for American Vision. AmericanVision.org. It's very simple. AmericanVision.org. Great. Well, uh, God bless you, brother. And Thank uh, you, Chris. Uh, thank you. I want to welcome everyone to our conference. This is uh, just as excited as these want to hear, Cap, uh, that uh, they were spoken to. Father, today they continue to comfort those they are spoken to, and they continue to give you glory. We would ask God that you would direct our thoughts 
open up our minds, Lord, that we may receive and may, may you receive all the glory, the honor, uh, and the power. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated if you want. Gary, I'd just like to turn it right over to you. I appreciate you being with us. Gary, of course, has been with us on many occasions. He's one of our more popular speakers. Every time we do a conference, uh, they always ask if, uh, if we can get him back. Can you just hook that up? I'm just going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Gary. I must be real desperate for speakers. Is it uh, still warm in here? Okay. See, I was, I was right. And it'll be warmer for me up here since I'm doing, I'm doing all the work. Um, as I mentioned last night, one of the difficult things to do is to come into a group and not knowing where everybody is in terms of eschatology. Uh, sometimes when Ken and I do something like this, we assume a lot of, uh, we assume that everybody is kind of up to speed on things and it is kind of difficult. So if, if I say things that you don't get or understand, hopefully there'll be a time for questions. Uh, but we, we have to assume certain things to be true and certain things are understood about particular aspects of Bible prophecies related from our particular uh, position. And uh, so hopefully we'll, co- we'll cover some of those issues as they come up, and I'll try to keep things in perspective as much as possible. And what I'm going to cover this evening is why eschatology matters. Uh, and I get this all the time. You know, I get on the radio, and when, when you're debating the topic of eschatology, people say, you know, Christians will say, why do we have to fight about this? You know, and this is an intramural debate. This is a debate among Christians uh, who do believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is the foundation for, for, for life and everything that we do. But there is a disagreement on the issue of eschatology, and I firmly believe that your view of the future determines how you will live in the present and prepare for the future. And I want to take you to Numbers, the 13th chapter, to, to begin this. Uh, and the reason I got involved in this whole issue of eschatology, and it's, it's an interest for, to most people, I believe, uh, and, but I got into it because as, as the, the Ministry of American Vision is to deal with worldview issues, how the Bible applies to every area of life. And as I would go out to speak, people would say, well, we're living in the last days. Why worry about Christian education? Why worry about politics? Why concern ourselves with trying to change our society? Because Jesus is coming soon. Uh, the, uh, you know, Israel has become a nation again in 1948. There's the mess in the Middle East. Uh, the things have gotten worse in our society. So why bother? And so it really became necessary for me to deal with the issue of eschatology because of those kinds of questions. And in the last 20 years, I think it's, we've proven our case that people were saying this over 20 years ago, and we're still here. People were making predictions back in 1988, something I'll talk about a little bit, and we're still here. People were looking at the year 2000 as being the end point of a 6,000-year period of a, and looking for a millennial rest, which was supposed to come in the year 2001. People are still pointing to the end. Um, and I believe that eschatological views have an effect on the way people live. And I'll give you some examples of that, not so much from, from, uh, from what Christians have to say about this, but how the other side views eschatology as well. Eschatology is not just a Christian phenomenon. Everybody has an eschatology. The communists had, a, had an eschatology. The Marxists had a, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Nazis had an eschatology, this idea of a thousand-year Reich. 
Islam has an eschatology. Everybody has an eschatology. The secularists who are Darwinists have an eschatology. And Christians have an eschatology, and the effect of their eschatology is a shortened history. And that, in fact, does something to their view of the future. And if you uh, look at Numbers chapter 13, and you know this story. This, there isn't, there isn't any, any secret here. Uh, if, look at verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So here's God telling, the, telling Moses to take a representative from each tribe to send those 12 into the land of Canaan based on an existing promise that the land was going to be theirs. So here they are told up front that the land is theirs. This wasn't, this wasn't send 12 spies out of the land to see the condition of the land to see whether or not we can take it. God says, this is the land I had promised to you, and this is the land I'm going to give to you, and send the 12 spies out of the land to, to scope it out, what I have promised. And you know the story. The 12 spies come back, and they give a report. Ten of the spies give a report stating that there are giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. Joshua and Caleb, who, by the way, if you, if you, if you read the rest of the, of the chapter, you'll note that, jo that Joshua and Caleb, two representatives from two of the tribes, do not deny that there are giants in the land. It's interesting. It's not saying, no, 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 there aren't giants in the land. They acknowledge that there are giants in the land. And from the perspective of, from their perspective, they're giants. But they're, they are, in fact, working on the basis of the promise of God, that the promise is, is that I've given you the land. And so it simply says, so what? And so the, pe the people vote. And the, the people, the majority of the people, accept the report of the ten spies, and as a result of that, decide not to go into the land. And what happens after that? Forty years, essentially, they wander in the wilderness waiting for that generation to die off. So their view of the future impacted their next step. And their next step was to go into the land that God had promised them. Forty years wasted in the wilderness when God was going to give them the land right up front. So let's now go 40 years into the future and look at the book of Joshua. We get to the book of Joshua, the second chapter. This time, this is 40 years later, two spies are sent out into the land. I don't know if Joshua was hedging his bet. Maybe he'd get a 50-50 rather than a... And, and, and eight, the, uh, the, the ten, the ten uh, two, he gets a, maybe one one, he maybe gets them both on their side. Uh, we don't know why the rationale of just two, but in this particular case, two spies are sent out, and they encounter Rahab. And I want you to, to, to listen to, beginning with verse 8, and I want you to listen to the perspective of Rahab and those of the people of the land of Canaan. And I want you to listen to what she was basing her view of how they perceive things. What, what was it that she was trusting in? It says, now before they lay down, this is in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Which is rather interesting. Did they change the sound? Uh, this, which is rather interesting because the Israelites saw God do all these things. They, not only did they see it happen, they experienced every bit of it. I mean, God takes them to the edge of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is the Red Sea, and then God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. God feeds them. God gives them water. God clothes them. God takes care of them in the wilderness. God promised them the land based upon his faithful promises all along. And Rahab says, I only, we only heard about it. We heard about it we believed. And, and you see the reversal of this where Rahab, while not saying it, but she said our hearts melted within us when we heard about these things, but they perceived themselves to be the grasshoppers and then the Israelites to be the giants. And the reason for that was for your... For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above on earth beneath. They recognized everything the Israelites should have recognized. And I would say that today we're in this same kind of situation. Because the modern day prophetic scheme looks at the world around us as giants that apparently God can't deal with with his church. And while he has given us the promise to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, and lo and behold you, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. It's the same kind of promise. Of course, we're not conquering the land in terms of horses and, and chariots and so forth. We are conquering the land and based the world in terms of the proclamation of the gospel and teaching people the, the precepts of Christ and, and the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and so forth. God has promised us the world, and yet we have taken the same kind of stance that the ten spies did in the, in the democratic analysis of that, saying we can't do it. And so we sit back and we wait for some sort of eschatological event to take place, and, it's, and it hasn't happened. And we, we, what, we've, what we've encountered then is, is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. As we've pulled back from culture, we've pulled back from the, 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 the real essence of the gospel, we've seen the secularists take over all these things, and we use that as justification for this is the end. So I think this is important for us to recognize that eschatology does, in fact, matter. What you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. And as a result, we are, at this particular time in history, a, a church, not, not a, I don't even think it's a majority. I think there are lots of Christians who have no idea what's really going on in terms of eschatology. But certainly as a, a vocal, vocal, large minority uh, our people are sitting back and waiting, and everything they see around them, especially things that are going on in the Mideast, is a prelude to an imminent end. And you can't be future-oriented if you take that perspective. So that's kind of introductory into why eschatology matters. And let me go through a couple of specifics I think are important as well. Because people always say, why should we get bogged down on this particular topic? So here's, here are a couple of points to keep in mind. Some say as much as 25% of the Bible is prophetic. That is, there's prophetic material in more than 25% of the Bible. Well, 
look, if the Bible is 25% of anything and we decide we're not going to study that 25%, we're making a huge mistake. We're saying 25% of God's Word is irrelevant. And you just can't take out sections of Scripture and say, well, I'm not going to study this because it's all interconnected. The Bible is an organic book. It's one book. It's called the Bible. And because it's called the Bible, it's one book with one message, one redemptive message. And so you can't pull stuff out of it and say, I'm not going to study that. I remember getting a, it was a study guide on the book of, book of Romans. And as I was going through it and making my lesson plan, I got to chapter 9. And there, wasn't a, there was no lesson on chapter 9. And I looked, and there was no lesson on chapter 10. And there was no lesson on chapter 11. So this thing skipped from chapter 8 and just, just left out and goes, to, and goes to chapter 12. I know why the guy did it, because chapters 9, 10, 11 are pretty controversial. You have chapter 9 dealing with the issue of election. You have chapter 10 dealing with Israel and the place of Israel in God's redemptive plan. But see, but you take those three chapters out of it and you destroy the continuity of the book. So you can't go through the Bible and say, I'm not going to study prophecy because there's this interconnection. And prophecy, just aren't, prophecy texts aren't just little bits and pieces. They're in relationship to the whole Bible. Um, Bible prophecy has a unique characteristic, and that is it's 100%, it claims to be 100% accurate. Uh, it is, when there's a prophecy in the Bible, it's got to come across in a 100% fulfillment process. There's no, there are no exceptions to that. If you can find an exception to it, then you could say that the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible requires 100% accuracy. Now, I want you to think about this, because you've got prophecy writers today. I just got back from, from Grand Rapids. I was in Grand Rapids uh, uh, Wednesday and Thursday going through Baker uh, Bookhouse, their used bookstore, and I was going through and finding all of the books that I could find dealing with prophecy. I found some other things, too. But on prophecy, they were written in the 1930s, 1940s, and the, the 1950s. In fact, I, I brought one with me, and I'll, I'll show it to you in a moment. And what I was doing is, of course, seeing what these guys predicted what was going to happen in terms of current events and what they saw was in the Bible. And, of course, they're all wrong. And this is a system that's prevalent today, and as a result of that, these guys don't do any better than Nostradamus, the Bible Code, or Gene Dixon. They're not any better. In fact, they're probably worse. I mean, Gene Dixon, I think, had about a 45 to 50% accuracy rate, which is simply 50-50. The Bible Code is an ex post facto way of, of, of uh, trying to find things in the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the, with the Bible Code, but uh, you can, when, when, when you have a language that doesn't have any vowels, which is, which is Hebrew, there are no vowels in Hebrew, they're a little vowel pointing, but they're just consonants. And uh, when you can, you can stretch the Hebrew letters across and kind of manipulate it, and you already have a historical event that's taken place, you can find things in, in there that you couldn't find. It's not really prophecy. It's an ex post facto way of reading the biblical text. Uh, Nostradamus, of course, is an ex post facto as well. Uh, and... Uh, Again, Gene Dixon played the averages. And that's what a lot of these prophecy writers do today. They play the averages. And most of it is ex post facto. If you go and you pick up Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, which was written in 1970, you'll find that Russia was the end time bad guy. Now, if you pick up a, the, the, the writers today 
you will find that Islam is the end time bad guy. And so what you, what you see happening here, of course, is, is that they're reading the Bible through the newspaper, what Greg Bonson's called newspaper exegesis. Uh, and as a result, as the, 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 head, the headlines are driving people's biblical interpretation. And if we're no better than Nostradamus and the Bible Code and Gene Dixon, then how, do we claim, how can we claim authority for anything else that's found in the Bible? If a skeptic comes along and does the same thing I did, and that is to go to Baker Books, pull out those books, read through those books, to see how they, in fact, had dealt with particular prophetic things back in their day and saw that they were wrong about those things, what would make a skeptic say, now, I wanna, now you want me to believe things about who Jesus Christ is and his redemptive message? Why are, now, why are you interpreting those things rightly when you got all of this stuff wrong? It's a, it's a huge, huge dilemma. Uh, the second point is Bible prophecy has been abused and misused when it has become the primary focus of aberrant theologies. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that there are certain groups out there who have made Bible prophecy the keystone of their system. It's the hub of the wheel. And if you were to pull that hub out, the spokes would collapse in on it. And, and this is the most recent thing. If you're familiar with the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Seventh-day Adventists grew out of the, the Millerites and it picked up some other baggage with Ellen White and so forth. And their, their system is based upon Daniel 8 and the identity of the little horn, who the little horn is, and the number of days and how that relates to their prophetic scheme. Well, some of the Seventh-day Adventist scholars are questioning that interpretation. And the argument is that if, we're, if, these, if these critics, these internal critics of Seventh-day Adventism are right about this improper interpretation of the little horn in Daniel chapter 8, then the whole system of Seventh-day Adventism collapses. And they have to rethink the whole deal. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, have built their, 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 uh, their whole basis on end times. And again, how many times have they had to continue to revamp things based upon how things have changed historically? David Koresh, he went up in flames because of a misinterpretation of the Bible. See, eschatology has consequences. Now, what about modern-day dispensationalism? Because this is where we really are and the focus that we are today. Uh, it, is, it is the end-time scheme. Anytime somebody burps in the Middle East, some dispensationalist has a book out telling us why this is the end times. And then the secular press will interview these guys on a, on a daily basis. I mean, they were it's, in, in, all over the news. You saw I, I was listening to Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye uh, sitting there. And it was as almost with glee that what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, you know, bombs blowing this up and houses being destroyed and. On the, on the brink of possibly a nuclear war, the, there was ex excitement. And there was a, a Rapture Ready blog where the writers on this Rapture Ready blog were describing that they, they, were, they felt guilty because they felt so, so uh, gleeful about these events, these end-time events. That's frightening. 
because what they see is as an, an inevitability of war in the Middle East. You have to have it. There's got to be a war. Now, of course, we'll all be raptured out. It won't really matter. But we won't be around to clean up the mess. Now, we've always had date setting in the past, and we've, we've published a book called the day, in the, uh, the day in the Hour, which deals with the date setting that's taken place for 2,000 years. But you had individuals here and there throughout history who were making the case for it. There was no systematic, there was no systematic development where tens of millions of people embraced an end-time scenario based upon a single model that's found in a, in a Bible that has notes in it within, that replaced the biblical text itself. That is the Schofield Reference Bible. So the Schofield Reference Bible created a prophetic interpretive grid that became the basis for the creation of a system where doctrines are created because of theological necessity. So here you have a system that's been developed you have a Bible with notes in it that reinforces the system, and then you give it to a new Christian who doesn't know anything about the Bible, and then he ends up reading the, the, the book, and he doesn't know what the text says. He's like the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he continually goes down to the notes, and the notes are driving the interpretation of the Bible for him. And so when you sit down with these people, and I get phone calls I do a lot of radio interviews on this topic, and I'll get phone calls, and I'll, I, this, is my, this is my first question. Where in the Bible does it say that? And inevitably, they, they don't know. Or they'll give a passage, and I'll say, now, what does it say? They don't know. I did a debate with, uh, I think it was my third debate with Tommy Ice. I, Ken, how many times have you debated Tommy? <laughs> I've debated Tommy probably eight or nine times. In the run, we can't get anybody else to debate. It's very, very difficult for anybody to step up and defend this position publicly. But I did a debate with uh, Gary North and I debated Tommy Ice and uh, Dave Hunt in Dallas a number of years ago. And during the question and answer, the cross-examination, I asked Dave Hunt, show me a verse in the Bible that says that Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Because that's what premillennialists believe. Premillennialists believe that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, I don't know about you, but I would expect to find a verse that says that. So I asked Dave Hunt, and to my surprise, Dave Hunt asked Tommy, which was his first mistake. Uh, and Tommy gave him uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Well, you can read Revelation 20, verse 4 all day, and it does not say that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. But that is the proof text. And they'll say, well, a thousand is mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20. And I said, yes, and it means probably the same thing all six times. So you've got to figure out what it means the first time before you can figure out what it means the other five times. But I find that people don't, who hold this position, I'm not saying everybody, but most of them could not go to the Bible itself to, to make the case for their position because they're, they're dependent upon a grid that was given to them to interpret the Bible. And th I believe that that is the, one of the most unique features of end-time speculation in our day. You have, a, you have a book, a Bible with notes in it. You have a system 
You have experts who write in that field continuing to reinforce what others have written plus the Bible itself. And that's, that's hard to go up against. And what happens is that because they have a system, the, the, the way that they interpret certain passages are, and you won't find the actual, you won't actually find what these passages are all about, uh, they, they, they infer certain things from them. I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 2, uh, there's a statue with the, with the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the feet with iron mixed with clay, and you'll, you'll find that uh, uh, the Clarence Larkin has, a, has charts on, the, on dispensationalism, and he has this statue on its side, and he has the toes stretched all the way into the future because he believes those ten toes refer to a revived Roman Empire. But when you read, a, you read a commentary by Leon Wood on Daniel, he says it's necessary for this to take place. The text doesn't say that, but it, because of the, the system forces them to stretch the toes. And you get to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through, through 27, where there's 70 weeks of years. There's no mention of Antichrist. There's no mention of a rebuilt temple. There's no mention of a gap between the 69th and 70th week. Well, so why do they put a gap in there? Because it's necessary to the system. The system drives the interpretation of the passage. How about the church-Israel distinction? It's the same thing. Where in the Bible does it say there's a distinction between the church and Israel? Let's, just say, let's assume that there is. Let's say that God has a plan for the church and God has a plan for Israel. And those are two distinct systems in the Bible. The dispensationalist said, says that the reason you have to have a preacher of rapture is because God can't deal with both peoples at the same time in redemptive history. So God has to take the church off the earth. I'm thinking, that's crazy. Uh, because if, if you base the Israel church distinction on the New Testament, weren't they existing on earth at the same time in the first century? Well, sure they were. And so that doesn't make any sense, but the system requires it. Uh, here's a good example this how the system drives the interpretation of Scripture. Go to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is the, Peter's Pentecost speech. And uh, he, in, beginning with verse 14, Peter gives an explanation as to why this is all happening. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, that Peter taking his stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who, have, who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So Peter says, this is what Joel said. This was Joel's prophecy. And he gives this prophecy. But if you go to the, the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, and Tommy Ice wrote the notes for the book of Acts. In a note, he says, it's, this is like that. He puts the word like in there because he has to, because if he admits this is that, then it ruins his whole system. And if you read the New World Translation, as Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you will find that they do the same kind of thing. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, about the the firstborn and so forth, firstborn of all creation. Um, they, they put in parentheses words that they have to put in there in order to make their system work. Well, Tommy does the same thing. He has a system and he forces the text of Scripture to fit the system.
Now, then there is the boy who cried wolf scenario within the modern day system. Um, and this is the first one. And I could, I could bring in literally hundreds of examples of this, but I thought this was one of the best, best ones. Uh, this is a book that was published in 1926 by Oswald J. Smith. I picked this up at Baker's. It's a very, very difficult book to get, and I'll, t I'll explain why. It's called, Is the Antichrist at Hand? Now, let me ask you this question. When he, mean, when he says at hand, what do you think he means? Pretty, yeah, pretty close. All right? Now, if you were to go to the Bible, and it says the kingdom of God is at hand, what would you think it means? It was pretty near. So, see, when they use that hand, uh, they mean it means near. But when the Bible uses that hand, it means something completely different. But that wasn't why I wanted to pay, have you pay attention to this. Let me read the, this, is a, this, this opening paragraph, which is right on the cover of the book. <laughs> the fact that this book has run swiftly into a number of large editions bears convincing testimony to its intrinsic worth. There are here portrayed startling indications of the approaching end of the present age from the spheres of demonology, politics, and religion. No one can read this book without being impressed with the importance of the momentous days in which we are living. And so Oswald J. Smith, in this book, took the current events, his current events of 1926, and saw them as indicators that the end of the days was upon them, so much so that it was at hand, that was 1926. Question, who did he say the Antichrist was going to be? Benito Mussolini. Now, you don't know, Benito Mussolini died in 1945. Um, and now, what, also, why this book is difficult to find is because Oswald J. Smith, after 1945, when he went to speak, he told people if they had copies of this to bring them in, he would buy them back. At least he, you know, can you imagine how Lindsay buying back 30 million copies of the late great planet Earth? But there are tons of these out here like this. This is newspaper exegesis. And when you read through this, it is the newspaper guiding and directing the interpretation of the Bible. And you just, you cannot, you cannot, uh, you just cannot do that. So here, here's an example. You've got, I mentioned Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey uh, wrote a book, Lake Great Planet Earth, in 1970, where he made the, the key to his prophetic system was Israel becoming a nation again in 1948. Then he went to Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, where it says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Then he said a generation is 40 years. At 40 to 1948, you get 1988. And uh, this is 2006. What happened? Well, Chuck Smith, who was another end-time speculator, I have a sermon that he gave on tape that he gave on, I think it was New Year's Day, or it may have been December 31st um, of 1979, where he made all these predictions about what was going to happen in the first part of the 1980s because 1988 was the end point of that generation. 
and the rapture was going to have to take place prior to 1988. And he was talking about how credit cards were the mark of the beast, and he talked about all of these things that were going to take place. Um, he was talking about signs in the heavens, and of course, Hal Lindsey talked about the Jupiter effect, where the, pro, where the, where the uh, planets lined up, and it was, going to, it was going to affect some sort of earthquakes and things on the earth, which would then have created famines and so forth. Now, most people forgot about all this stuff. New Christians come in and they hear all this, these prophetic guys, and they have no idea that there's a long history of false prophetic speculation. Tim LaHaye wrote a book called Beginning of the End. In the first edition of that book, he said that the beginning point of the, this generation was 1917 with the Balfour Declaration, giving Israel the right to go back to their land. But as time passed, and that generation seemed to be dying off, he, in his new edition, he changed it to 1948. Well, since now we're moving beyond the 40 years of 1948, now people are saying, well, it was this time or this time, or Israel really doesn't have the land. Look, the, the Bible can't be that subjective and can't be that unclear if you keep changing your views on things based upon what happens in the news. So you need a prophetic system that's always trustworthy, and while you might have to make some modifications to it as you get more information about things, but essentially, when you read the Bible and dealing with prophecy, you know exactly what events it's talking about because you know the time in which the Bible says those events are going to take place. John Walford wrote a book in 1970. Well, John Walford wrote a book in 1990 called Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis. You may have seen it. It sold 1.2 million copies when the first Gulf War was in process. And it, again, made all these predictions about what was going to happen. And then when that Gulf War kind of went out, uh, you, you couldn't give the book away. Uh, Christian book distributors were sell was selling it by the case. I was telling people to, to buy it and, because people were talking about Y2K, and I said, look, if you're really interested in the Y2K thing, you could buy cases of this book and use it for kindling for your, to keep you warm. But what most people don't know, that that book was first published in 1974. And it was revised in 1990 in order to take care of the new developments in world events. But who knew that? I did, because I, I collect this kind of stuff. There's perpetual end-time speculation. Let's see if I can find this. This is um, the National Liberty Journal. Recognize this, Greg? <laughs> uh, we get this at our office. And there's an article in here um, that Tommy Ice wrote. And it's really confusing. The article is, by the way. And uh, anyway, he... He, he talks about the last day. Here it is, yeah. Are we living in the biblical last days? And it doesn't make any sense. He says, well, the last days doesn't always mean our last days. It could be the last days of something else. And when you read this, you're more confused than when you started with all of this. But it's all based upon current events and how the Bible is read through the filter of current events. Now, I must say, Jerry Falwell at least he has not allowed his eschatology to affect him in, in the school that he's created. It's really quite schizophrenic. 
uh, why why are you training this 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 the champions for Christ as he says and the end is near and I have a quotation from Jerry Falwell who said that he believed the rapture was going to take place before the year 2000 he would not see he would not see another millennium or another another century but I'm glad he's schizophrenic because the day is going to come when that system is going to collapse um, the whole, the whole thing with, with, with Left Behind, the Left Behind series. I don't know if you know this, but there was a whole series of books that were written around 1918 through 1926 was a, was a, a fictional account of the rapture by a guy named Watson. One was called In the Twinkling of an Eye. I, I have these old books, and they're, they're, they're prophetic novels. Took the events of that particular day and applied them to what the Bible had to say, and this guy created a, a, uh, a series of novels, and the, and the books went through multiple printings, just like Left Behind. Now, the, the, real, the real issue here is, the, because of this prophetic speculation, the focus is taken off Jesus Christ and put on a people and their land. Uh, and you think about that today, that's basically what's talked about. It's Israel and the land, Israel and the land. In fact, there was a meeting up in Washington, D.C. this year that John Hagee sponsored, and it was all these, these Christian evangelicals who were uh, supporting Israel. But the emphasis was not on the gospel to Israel. It was on Israel essentially as a secular nation and their right to the land. But yet if you read the book of Acts, it's the gospel. It's always the preaching of the gospel throughout all that, uh, through there, so that the Jews would ask, what must I do to be saved? And you see that this shift has taken, taken place, that has taken things off of the redemptive nature of Christ, of who Jesus is and transforming lives, and put it on a group of people in a, in a piece of land. And I think it's had an effect on our ability to evangelize in that region uh, to the Muslim world, because we have centered we have we have centered in on a on a nation when the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible, the gospel goes out to every nation. There is no particular nation today that the Bible says is unique and special. You read the New Testament, you won't find any of that. And I'll deal with. I'll deal with uh, Romans chapter 11 uh, tomorrow because that's one that always comes up in discussion. And if you really pay attention to the text and pay attention to the time indicators in there, you begin to see its, it's proper place in, in God's redemptive plan, and it fits very, very well with all that. Now, does that mean that we should reject the Jews and have nothing to do with the Jews? Absolutely not. But if we have to approach the Jews in terms of the gospel, same with any other group. Now, another point. Uh, the advance of Christianity in the world, especially in the West, was based on a post-millennial vision. Uh, these guys actually believe that the, that the kingdom of God is extended through the preaching and application of the gospel. And what we're doing, we're beginning to see a stillbirth of Christianity, uh, Christianity similar to promise keepers. Uh, anybody associated with promise? Anybody go to any of the promise keepers meetings? Do you still go to Promise Keepers meetings? No. Pardon? Yeah. And what 
happens, I find a lot of men go to the promise keepers. And it, I'm not saying promise keepers was a bad thing. But there's, there's this, well, now what do I do? Okay, I've got my life back together. I need to be a better husband, a better father, a better person as a man. What do I do now? Where do I go with all of this? And I think that's where a lot of Christians are today. They don't know what to do. There's this, you know, I've got this Christian faith, and so the the central part has become on more of experiential Christianity rather than applying the gospel in its fuller dimension. Um, So, so as Christians, we're, we're, we're changed and excited for what? What are you as a Christian changed and excited for? The rapture? Inevitable cultural decline? Inevitable war? I mean, that's what we're looking at with the modern system. And so a lot of people will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to look at this particular passage, because I think it serves well as an end cap to a biblical discussion of this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is often read as a, as a key passage which deals with what the end times will be like. But generally what happens, people only read the first seven verses. And, you know, you can make the Bible say almost anything if you read just bits and pieces of it. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I, I believe the last days refers to the last days of the Old Covenant. Paul is not talking about something in the distant future. He's describing things to Timothy, what's happening in his day. Uh, Paul talks about how the ends of the ages had come upon them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says God spoke one way under the Old Covenant, but in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, the last days of the Old Covenant. And then Paul goes on and says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. Now, he's talking to Timothy here. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. A lot of people say this describes our era perfectly. I would speculate that this describes every era perfectly. And it most assuredly explained the first century. We think about, well, look at homosexuality today. Look at the prevalence of homosexuality. Have you read Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 was dealing with homosexuality then. Do we think this is unique to our time? It isn't. It was, the reason we have, it, we've seen it is because Christians have pulled back from society. But I want you to look at the next couple of verses here. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. So Paul's saying, wait a minute here, the paradigm is, as these people become more and more consistent with their worldview, they're on the losing side of this. And we should push them to be consistent with it. This is one of the great things that Greg Bonson taught us in the area of apologetics. Push the antithesis. Force people to live consistently with their worldview and see where it gets them. And when you push and you push and you push, it's amazing what comes out of secularists and so forth. I've 
been debating the guy online, and I said, look, you're, you're an evolutionist, you don't believe in God, you believe that we all, we're, we're a, a commodity of our genes, this is the selfish gene that Richard Dawkins has talked about, we're all, this is a, we're, uh, morality is gene-based, and I'm thinking, that sounds like Ernst Haeckel. Ernst Haeckel was a German uh, biologist who gave scientific credibility to evolution from biology to ethics. And then it was Hitler who took that and applied it to his Aryan race idea. I'm not saying that, of course, all evolutions are like that today. But the question is, I push this guy. If everything is gene-based, then why can't a murderer say I'm being directed by my genes? Or a rapist say, I was raped as part of my genetic structure. In fact, there's a book out on that, A History of Rape, where the guys, these are professors, and it was published by MIT Press where they essentially said evolution, evolution, I mean, rape is part of the whole evolutionary process. So, how, so what's wrong with it then? And I kept pushing this guy, what's wrong with it? And what he kept doing, he kept bringing in Christian ideals to his worldview. I said, I can account for those Christian ideals within the parameters of my worldview, but you can't. They don't exist. So we have to push the antithesis with these guys, and this is exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. But he's telling him that they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses, and you know what happened there when they when took Aaron's rod and threw it down, became a serpent, and the two sorcerer high priests came out and threw their staffs down, and they became serpents and so forth. That's, that's the example that's being used here. It's not that we don't make further progress. They don't make further progress. It's, it's the story of Numbers 13 and Joshua chapter 2 all over again. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. These guys are on the losing side. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They proceed from bad to worse. They're deceiving and being deceived. But if we're not engaging them and pushing the antithesis with them, they think they have wisdom. And so if you believe you're living in the end times, then these guys have a free, free reign. And I went to the I went to the bookstore today and took, had a list. I found 14 books uh, there that I'm, I, I'd like to have. Uh, one, one is Why Darwin Matters, um, Religion Gone Bad, Creatures of Accident. Well, if you're a creature of accident, then morality is an accident too. Uh, the Holy Vote. Why the Christian right is wrong. Moral mind. This is a Darwinist trying to convince us that, you know, we have moral minds. But there is not even mind in Darwinism. Um, in, in the atheist universe. I mean, these, these guys, when you read their stuff, it's ridiculous. But they're touted as, in fact, the people who have wisdom and what we ought to do. Reason is the new standard today, they say. Now, we need to push the antithesis with these guys, but you can't do it if you're living, if you believe you're living in the end times. And I would maintain that the secularists understand this better than Christians do. 
And let me give you a couple of examples of this. I've got a couple of, of minutes here. Um, this is a the guy wrote this. He says, this is a, this is a pure secular, secular. He says, we are going to win. Your ilk will probably, let's see, uh, I will fight people like you until I die. I will give money. I will march. I will sue. I will never stop, never. Every day I breathe will be to advance gay rights. Every success you people have only makes me more determined. And you people may get what you want for now, but young people don't feel the way you do, and they will be making the rules soon enough and they won't hate gay people. It may take 10, 20, or 30 years, but gay people will get everything that they want, I can assure you. All setbacks now are temporary, trust me. I live by this every day, and it is good news that God is on my side, gay side. Eschatology. Eschatology. Give us enough time, and we'll change the culture. We'll do it our way. And Christians see that as an indication of the end times. Here's another one. This guy says, I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. Their, their teachers must embody the same selfless dedication of the most rabid fundamentalist preacher, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism, resplendent in its promise of a world which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. Yeah, John Dunphy, and then he was he was uh, questioned about this later after he had written this, and he says um, he says, but here's something that Pat Buchanan neglected to mention in his address: humanism is going to win. Eschatology. Islam will invade Europe and America. I have complete faith that Islam will invade Europe and America because Islam has a logic and a mission. Eschatology. Today, Tehran, tomorrow, the world. Adolf Hitler, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, uh, he said in a speech on November 6, 1933, I calmly say your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp, in a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. And on May 1st, 1937, he declared, this new Reich will give its youth to no one, but will itself take youth and give to youth its own education and its own upbringing. These guys understood that the future mattered. And I believe that one of the factors that has allowed these guys uh, to do what they are doing today is because Christians have adopted this idea within the end times, and all this kind of fits into it. Uh, one last, one last uh, uh, statement by Joseph Zahn, and uh, Joseph Zahn was a, he's a Romanian Christian leader. He lived in atheistic Romania. I want you to think of this. Romania was officially atheistic. To pr make a pronouncement publicly about Christianity would, in fact, put you in jail, which he was, he was in fact, put in jail. And 
Joseph Zahn quotes First Chronicles 12.32, the men of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And he tells this little story. He says, let me, under, let me illustrate the importance of understanding the times from my own experience. The communist disaster fell on my country when I was a teenager. For many years after that, my life was a battle for intellectual and spiritual survival under Marxist indoctrination and totalitarian anti-Christian terror. Now, I want you to think of this. You could not have a meeting like this. They couldn't be doing promise keepers down the road. You couldn't have churches on the corner. You couldn't have bookstores with Christian literature. And yet we feel like we're hopeless in America. We have all these freedoms, and we have literally tens of millions of Christians all around. And here's one guy in a communistic nation where he was always on, on pins and needles to see, to see whether or not someone's going to break into his house and put him in jail. And this guy had optimism about the future. He says, I struggled to understand the nature of that calamity, and the Lord gave me that understanding. In the 40s, I wrote papers on the nature of the failure of communism. One of them published, one of them published under the title of the Christian Manifesto, landed me in six months of house arrest with harsh interrogations by the secret police. But for me, the crucial moment came in 1977 when a friend of mine challenged me to set up an organization that would openly expose communism. Here's what I told him. Communism is an experiment that has failed. Second Timothy 3. They will not make further progress. It wasn't able to fulfill any of its many promises, and nobody believes in it anymore. Because of this, it will one day collapse on its own. Now, why should I fight something that is finished? I believe that our task is a different one. When communism collapses, somebody has to be there to rebuild society. I believe our job as Christian teachers is to train leaders so that they will be ready and capable to rebuild our society on a Christian basis. To my surprise, here is what my friend said to me. Joseph, you are wrong. Communism will triumph all over the world because this is the movement of the Antichrist. And when communists take over in the United States, they will have no restraining force left. They will then kill all the Christians. We have only one job to do, to alert the world and make ready to die. A few years later, my friend was forced to leave Romania. He came to the U.S. and settled down. Then I was forced into exile, and I moved to the U.S. as well. Since then, my friend has not done anything for Romania. He simply waited for the tri final triumph of communism and the annihilation of Christianity. On the other hand, when I came here in 1981, I started a training program for Christian leaders in Romania. We translated Christian textbooks, smuggled them into Romania, he talks about we trained about 1,200 people all over Romania. Today, those people who are trained in that underground operation are the leaders of churches and evangelical denominations and in key Christian ministries. And listen to this. You see, the way you look to the future determines your planning and your actions. It is the way you understand the times that determines what you are going to do. That's why eschatology is important. The other side gets it. And we are involved in an eschatological stillbirth because Christians are looking to a future that isn't any further than the next event in the Middle East. And it is stymieing what, what the Church of Jesus Christ could do in the world. And so that's why a topic like this, and, and Craig has been diligent in, in exposing the people to this 
and because it is such an important item. Uh, now, tomorrow I'll be dealing with some difficult texts that fit into this, and I've already dealt with Matthew 24, and I have books dealing with that. Uh, but I'm going to deal tomorrow with uh, Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, Zechariah 12, uh, and some other texts, especially Romans chapter 11, to try to put these more difficult texts into their proper historical context. Thank you. Five or eight-minute break here, and then we'll uh, come back. Ken Jeffrey will be uh, giving a presentation, and uh, we, have, uh, we have a handout for him as well. In dealing with the topic of, of eschatology, uh, I, I've debated this for for years on the radio, and in the late 1980s, when I first got on the radio and started talking about the kind of the shift that was taking place in eschatology and a different way to look at the Bible regarding eschatology and telling people that this isn't a new view. I mean, anything you're really hearing uh, t today is not new at all. Uh, what I think what's, what's taken place in the, in the work that, that I'm doing and Ken is doing and other people are doing is uh, – pulling this together more. I've, I've talked to some of you about older commentators, and those older commentators really didn't kind of didn't have the issues that we're having today. Eschatology was, 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 was pretty basic. Most people were considered historicists, and they were kind of newspaper exegetes as well. They believe the book of Revelation dealt with the whole span of prophetic history from the time of Christ to the to the to the uh, to the second coming, and that you could you could find particular historical periods in the Book of Revelation, and that was pretty agreeable to most people. And so there wasn't a great deal of debate as to uh, on eschatology, and it, and it really things changed, of course, with the advent of dispensationalism first in the 19th century and then later in the 20th century with the Schofield Reference Bible because things got systematized. And, and, the, and the, this was very, very popular in the 1970s, especially when Israel became a nation again in 1948. The idea of the 40, 40 years Israel become, would, uh, this will all take, would, would end within a 40-year within a period, 1988. And uh, people began to question all these things. And so when 1988 came and you got on the radio and you started telling people, look, there was a different way to look at Scripture, there were lots of people who were very, very angry. And I would say 90% of the people who called in and to respond to me uh, were, were very nasty because they were very protective of an eschatological system because that eschatological system in, in essence were pillars upon which their whole Christian life rested, and they felt that if you attacked this aspect of what their Christian life was built upon, you were attacking everything that they believed about Christianity. And so you can understand there's the, uh, the fear that people had of questioning an eschatological position that they had grown up with and that they were, um, that had formed the basis of their belief system. And I, and I guess if, uh, I'd feel the same way if someone came to me and and made a statement and said, you know, you're really looking at this whole thing wrong, and if you just, just turned the dial a little bit this way, you would see a different perspective and how it would change everything that I believed. So I understand that. Uh, but what I always would do when I got on the, the radio with somebody, I would ask this question, where in the Bible does it say that? 
That was my, always my first question. Where in the Bible does it say that? And let me give you a couple of examples. And I think this is crucial because it's one, it, there, there is one part of this which I think is, is, uh, is necessary to bring out, and that is the fact that the Bible is the standard by which we evaluate these things. And, of course, the, the dispensationalists, and, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm not just attacking dispensationalism because it's an easy target. I'm, I'm, I'm going after it because it's the biggest target. You go into a Christian bookstore, and the majority of the books in the prophecy section deal with the, with the, end, the end times that are it's dispensational. Um, I don't talk that much about amillennialism because the majority of people aren't amillennial. If, uh, if amillennialism were in the ascendancy, then I would deal with it. But dispensationalism is the most popular position out there. And so I always ask the question because dispensationalists claim that their system is a biblical system and they take the Bible literally. And so I would always ask, where in the Bible does it say that? And generally, most people didn't know where the Bible said that. They had heard the Bible said this, but in particular verses, they didn't know. Let me give you a couple of examples. I remember a lady calling in and, and saying that uh, on the millennial question that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so I asked the question, where does it say this? And I mentioned to you that you know, Dave Hunt said, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And so I read this passage to this woman four times. And she finally saw that it didn't say that. And it was that Jesus was reigning on the earth for a thousand years. And so the, what we have got to do is to get people to ask the question, where in the Bible does it actually support a particular doctrine? I want to go through a couple of these uh, to, to, to deal with this. The first one is the rapture. Uh, the, and there are five rapture positions. There's a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib, partial rapture, and pre-wrath. And one of the key factors in, in all five positions, and they make the accusation against one another, the post-tribulationalist will say that there is, no, there is no passage in the Bible that teaches a pre-trib rapture. And the pre-trib rapture says there's no verse in the Bible that teaches a post-trib rapture. So they all accuse one another of not having a single verse that actually teaches the position. Now, if that's the case, if you can't find a single verse that actually supports your key doctrine, well, then I would question whether or not the doctrine itself exists. I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good way of evaluating things. If, if, it's a, if it's a doctrine on the periphery, then you might want to say, well, you know, we can infer this from this, but this is their key doctrine. And there is no single verse that teaches that the church is going to be taken off the earth prior to a seven-year tribulation period. And following that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the advent of Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple, and all those kinds of things. There is no verse that says that. And I know that the, the first passage they will go to will be First Thessalonians chapter 4, but when you read in a debate I had with Dave Hunt, this is, the, this is the place he went, and I said, Dave, nobody is disagreeing that uh, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Nobody is disagreeing that that event takes place. What the disagreement is, what is this particular event that's being described here? You say it's, a, it's a, the rapture of the church prior to a seven-year tribulation period. I don't see any discussion here of a seven-year tribulation period. 
I don't see any discussion that follows this that says anything about Antichrist. There is no discussion here about a rebuilt temple. All the things that are necessary for a preacher of rapture to be supported by scripture passages, you don't find it in this passage. In fact, what you do find is in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So this particular passage seems to indicate this is an actual end event. That what follows this is probably, and, and, and most people have taken it this way, is the eternal state. There is no earthly event that follows what is being described here. So it doesn't fit any of the rapture position, uh, any of the tribulation positions, uh, any of the rapture positions, because each of the rapture positions either says that there's a tribulation to follow, uh, there's the wrath of God to follow, or there's a millennium to follow. This is a passage which deals with the second coming of Christ. But this, is, this, would, be their pivotal do- this would be their pivotal verse. And yet the pivotal verse that they use does not support their claim for that position. And a lot of people are surprised when you ask this question about a single verse uh, dealing with the, with, with the rapture. How about the land promises? This is another one that comes up frequently. You'll find lots of Christians believe that Israel never got the promised land. The, pro- the land had been promised to Israel, but Israel never got it. Uh, they went into the land, uh, but they never really took over all of the land. And this is very, this is very popular today, and that's why they maintain that the, the, the promises made to Israel are yet to be fulfilled in this period, this seven-year period in the future. Uh, the problem with that is, is that's not what the Bible says. And this is another one of those passages where someone called in uh, to a radio program where I was on, and I said, let me read you this passage. It's out of Joshua chapter 21, beginning with verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the guy on the other end of the phone said, but, and I said, let me read it again. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Every promise that God made to Israel regarding the land has, in fact, been fulfilled. Look at the next verse. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Verse 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And I I, I read this passage over to this guy, like the woman who called in on Revelation 20, dealing with the millennium, Four times before he finally said, you know, I never saw that before. Well, other commentators have seen it, and it's amazing to, to, to look at the kind of exegetical gymnastics they use to get around to what this passage actually says. Now, if you read further on, it's obvious that the problem wasn't with God's promise and the fulfillment of it. The promise was with Israel and their unfaithfulness in carrying out the promises made to them by God. Now, it's interesting when you get into the New Testament that Jesus doesn't say anything about land promises. We go back to the New Testament. There is no mention about Israel going back to the land. No, nothing. Not at all. In fact, you read the book of Acts. What do, the, what do the, uh, a lot of the, the Jews in Israel do with their land? In, in Jerusalem, anyway. They sell some of it. 
And if you look, listen to the Great Commission, they are to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. It seems to be, the idea seems to be that, that Israel, while it was the staging for, uh, ground for what was to take place, what Jesus really had in mind was to take the gospel into all the world. And you begin to see that the things move out from Israel, and there's no preoccupation with the land of Israel again when you get into the, into the New Testament. There's no mention of it at all. Now, it seems to me that if the land was such a, an important end-time prophetic theme that you would think that somehow, somehow, Jesus would have mentioned it, or Paul would have mentioned it, or Peter would have mentioned it, but there's no mention of it anywhere. And people will say, then another one is, is about Israel becoming a nation again. Where in the Bible does it, where in the New Testament does it say anything about Israel becoming a nation again? Now, the Old Testament talks about it, and I'm sure, and, and of course, Israel did become a nation again uh, after coming from exile. We'll talk a little bit about, about that later. Where in the New Testament does it say anything about Israel becoming a nation again? Well, here's what they do. They'll go to Matthew chapter 24. Then you go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. That is their verse that says Israel is going to become a nation again. And what's what I find interesting about this passage is if you look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 14, you, you, you get an indication, very specific things, earthquakes and famines, nation up against, going up against nations, wars and rumors of wars. Talks about, talk about to deliver you up to tribulation, verse 9. False prophets, false Christs, lawlessness, uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom being preached throughout the, the Roman Empire, uh, the abomination of desolation, all these very specific things that, have that, that you, know, you know what a famine is, you know what an earthquake is, you know what tribulation is, you know what, all of these different things are very, very specific. But yet the, 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 the most important aspect of all of this, the most important timing key, Israel becoming a nation again, it's so cryptic. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. This doesn't say anything about Israel becoming a nation again. In fact, if you go to Luke's version of this, now learn the parable from the fig tree and all the trees, it says. And I remember in, in dealing with this particular passage, I quoted John Walford. Now, John Walford was a was a, what I would call a scholarly dispensationalist. He, he wrote in a, in a more scholarly vein. And when he comes to this passage, he makes the comment that this is not a reference to Israel becoming a nation again. This is John Walbert, who's a dispensationalist. And I wrote that in an article, and I got a, somebody wrote me a letter, and he said, John Walbert never said that. And so I thought, ooh, I, I better go check because, you know, I, I'm, I make mistakes. And uh, so I went back and checked, and John Walbert did say that. He actually said it. And the reason I think he said it is, is because if you, if you say, verse 32, that Israel is the fig tree, then you have a problem with Jesus cursing the fig tree in Matthew chapter 21. And what does he say? That there'll never be any fruit on this tree again. So if you make the connection from from Matthew chapter 21 and the basically the leaves-only tree in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, 
you find a contradiction if you say in one Israel becomes a nation again and the other one there are no that this the fig tree is going to be cursed. So Walbert understood the dilemma. I think all Jesus is saying here is, because you see the parallel in Luke, look, when trees put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. When you see all these signs, you know that these events are near. That's all it's saying. Now, if you take this particular verse out of here, what you find is that there is, of course, this verse doesn't say it either, there's nothing in the New Testament that says anything about Israel becoming a nation again. So there would be no prophetic significance to Israel being a nation today. The New Testament is silent about it. Now, the Old Testament, of course, deals with Israel becoming a nation again, but as I mentioned to you, uh, Israel did become a nation again. How about the temple? According to dispensationalists, a temple has to be rebuilt. Where in the New Testament does it say there's going to be a temple to be rebuilt? Nowhere. It's not mentioned anywhere. Now, you look at a passage like Matthew 24, 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of to Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and this is generally thought to be the temple, they'll say, see, this is an indication of a rebuilt temple. And if you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, where it says the man of lawlessness takes a seat in the temple, they'll say that's a rebuilt temple. Or you go to Revelation chapter 11, and you say the temple is, is there that John has told the measure, and they'll say that's a rebuilt temple. But they have, to, they have to prove that. Uh, the temple was still standing when Jesus gave the statement in Matthew 24, verse 15. And if you look at the audience here, it says, therefore, when you see the abomination, he was talking to that particular audience. And so you would have to, Jesus would have to say, therefore, when they see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, the temple is still standing in 2 Thessalonians, when, when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians 2, there's no indication there that he's talking about a rebuilt temple. And in, in Revelation chapter 11, I believe it's a pretty good indication that it helps us to date when the book of Revelation was written because we know the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And so actually John is dealing with the temple that was still standing. And so what you have a dispensationalist doing is reading the system that they've already developed back into the Bible and interpreting the Bible through an already developed system. But there's no verse in the Bible that says anything about a temple being rebuilt. So there's no verse that teaches a, a, a rapture. No verse in the New Testament says anything about Israel coming back to the land. No verse that says anything about a rebuilt temple. These are pillars of the system, and yet there isn't a single verse that supports any of those particular doctrines. Now, one of the other arguments that is, is, is used is the, the idea that the covenant made to Israel is an eternal covenant. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see the, the idea of an eternal covenant made to Israel. But it's, it's interesting that when you look at the language that's, that's used for the eternal covenant made to Israel, and compare that to the eternal covenant that's made to Noah, and I've, I've, I've done this, and the, the language is identical. And so when God made the promise to Noah about never bringing a worldwide flood again, and God makes the promise to Abraham as a, as a, as a promise that the covenant is, will, be in, uh, in, uh, will continue on forever, you would expect the two of them to follow the same type of parameters. Now let's, let's take the, the dispensational argument. What does the dispensationalist say? At the time of Christ's crucifixion, the covenant made with Israel was postponed. And we are living in what they call a parenthesis. 
and that we are living within a period of time that was not foreseen in the Old Testament, and we're living in the church age. And during the church age, God is not dealing with Israel. God will not deal with Israel again until the church is raptured off the earth and God deals with Israel during the seven-year period. So for approximately 2,000 years so, so far, the, the uh, covenant made with Israel has been postponed. All right? That's what it says. Let's go back to Noah. Noah is given a promise, and, which applies to us as well, and the, a sign is put in the, in, in the, in the sky uh, with a rainbow saying, when you see this, it's a reminder that my covenant goes on forever. I will never flood the earth again like I did in your day. So now let's apply the parenthesis view of dispensationalism to Noah flood covenant. All right? And let's say there is a flood comes on the earth again just like it did before. And people cry out to God and say, Wait a minute, you promised never to send a flood like that. Oh, I postponed that, my, my promise, and we're living in a parenthesis period, and I can flood any time I want because we're in the parenthesis period. And we would say, well, that's, that doesn't seem right. If this covenant goes on forever, forever is forever, how is it that you can put a parenthesis in here? See, it doesn't make sense to say that something goes on forever and then at the same time maintain that you can put a parenthesis in there. So the question comes down to, how can God's covenant made with Israel be continuous and at the same time have what the New Testament seems to have here is that these promises made to Israel have been fulfilled? Now, that's what I maintain, that when you read the New Testament, all the promises made to Israel have, in fact, been fulfilled. That covenant made with Israel... Just like God said, it's forever. And you get into the New Testament, what do you find? The gospel is preached to whom first? Who gets to hear this gospel first? The Jews do. And so the Jews are brought, are, 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 they embrace Jesus as the Messiah by the thousands. And then you find the Apostle Peter who objects to the idea that Gentiles are going to be brought in. And so what you find in the New Testament is the perpetuation of this eternal covenant. And the Jews are brought in, and Gentiles are grafted in all the way through history. And so God hasn't changed his, his covenant with, with Israel. God's covenant with Israel is, in fact, a remnant of Israel, just like it's always been, which then takes us to Romans chapter 11. So let's look at Romans chapter 11 a little bit. And I'm not going to go through all of Romans chapter 11, but I just want to point out a couple of things. Romans chapter 11 uh, is, is used in, in various ways. The interpretations of it, there, there are a number of them. Um, and uh, one particular view, the dispensationalist view, says that this particular passage deals with the end-time salvation of Israel during the Great Tribulation period in which a remnant of Israel is saved. Because keep in mind what a dispensationalist teaches about the Great Tribulation. Sorry about that. The running out of juice there with the headset. Be back in about a half an hour. Oh, my friend, our friend uh, Ryan, that wasn't going to do this. I was just read the Bible, but found some good videos to listen to. Very persuasive arguments that, quite frankly. The whole Bible. Just finished 
70 AD. That doesn't mean it's not applicable to us, of course, the gospel. And we certainly could apply things that we find in the the Bible to things like the papacy and etc., but it's not really talking about us or our time. So tough. I guess it's the way it is. Changes things. But the thing is, it makes the Bible very understandable now. It's not satisfied satisfying for the ego. Thinking we're the because we're self centered preachers and we think that we certainly should be talking about us. But also the gospel and forewarning it about Antichrist. Not really. Not really, no. 